feel a bit more prepared now. That's great. Five, four, three, two. So I'm speaking now to adjunct professor at Victoria University, Professor Judy, Judy Lawrence at the Climate Change Research Institute. Welcome to When the Facts Change, Judy. Morena. Uh, I'm curious about uh, one year on from the uh, anniversary floods and uh, Cyclone Gabrielle, what we've learnt and also whether we were ready. What's, what's your view on whether we were ready and um, whether we've improved much since then? Well, in a word, no. Uh, we're not really prepared for these sorts of um, deluges that we saw and we will get more of them. Um, we don't know exactly where, but there's a good chance they'll be in the upper North Island, but we can't rule out them happening in the middle of the North Island, um, the south and um, in other places in urban areas. So we do need to be thinking about what we've learned from Auckland. And interestingly, we have known for a considerable time since the early work of Neil Erickson in 1986, which talked about creating disasters. And we've continued to do that by building in dumb places. Um, now, people often do not act until they experience um, the hazard. And I think that's what's been happening in New Zealand. Um, we think it won't happen to us. Um, there's pressure for development, pressure for housing. Um, but I think we've got to the stage where our infrastructure is not up to it. Uh, the pipes um, are old. Um, we've built and covered in our streams, built on and covered in our streams. Um, and those places in Auckland that... Um, had given more room for the creeks, didn't flood. Um, now, that shouldn't come as a surprise, but we do need to be using the tools that we do have um, to avoid these places for more development, but also to um, retrofit our urban areas so that water has somewhere to go and not through people's houses. Yeah, I, I wondered um, while watching the response to Cyclone Gabrielle and the Auckland anniversary floods, whether um, there was there could have been a better way, uh, and in particular, you know, uh, around deciding beforehand, you know, who has to bear the cost or um, preparing in advance, as you say, uh, by um, reintroducing wetlands in the right place or building in resilience. Um, now that we know what it can look like and how it feels. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how should we respond now and, and have we done it? Well, some councils have started doing this, and, uh, but unfortunately it's all being done in a rather ad hoc basis. We're making rules um, following disasters and it's not the best time to be doing that because we're under pressure, um, there's a crisis, people are vulnerable and people are exposed. Um, it's taken a year for some of the, the houses to be bought out and settled. Um, and that's still happening today. So, you know, that's too long for people to have to put up with um, the discomfort, the anxiety and so on. Um, so the better way would be to provide these and develop these rules and develop the... Um, um, the integration of the response in a much better form. 
Now, we do have disaster response legislation, and it only very slightly considers the um, ongoing changes from climate, um, and it's not sufficient. And also there's an inadequate integration across the different agencies, you know, from the roading agencies, the stormwater agencies, through to the local councils um, and the emergency response and so forth. It's poorly integrated and it, it's very much focused on a disaster response rather than a planned response. And so there has been quite a lot of work already done, um, which is currently with government, uh, on what is needed to respond in a more planned fashion. There was a work expert working group set up by the previous government to uh, look into this as to who pays, um, what the likely approaches might be. And that has yet to be processed processed within central government. Um, but, it, but it has to really be done across all agencies who are affected and also local government particularly. But local government can't do it alone. Um, there isn't the funding to be able to do it alone. And so these rules need to really be worked through pretty promptly um, because we can't really wait another two years for this to happen. That's right. I, I wonder what, what's stopping us? You know, well, why, why aren't we addressing this? Is it just simply people have looked at the numbers and gone, ah, no, ratepayers and voters won't, won't put up with that. We'll just have to find some other way. No, I think we have a tradition in New Zealand called pass the parcel, and that actually, it, it, it's somebody else's problem, or it won't happen to me. Um, but now we've seen that different actions on the land can bring devastating effects on people, and they don't just last, you know, for a month or two. They're ongoing, and every time it rains, um, children and families are anxious. And that's not the sort of New Zealand we really need. Um, we want people to thrive in their communities. Um, we want people to um, integrate the actions that they're doing and decisions taken in a timely fashion. And so to me, the only way you can really effectively do that is to have some sort of joint governance arrangements um, for planning, deciding at what level um, the avoidance can occur, um, who makes those decisions. It's been very hard for local government to make those sort of decisions when they're very close to the communities who are directly affected and the interests who are wanting to develop. And so it, there has to be some level at central government to give some sort of direction and guidance for that to happen in a, in a timely fashion. But also it can't just be devolved to the lower level or to the upper level. It has to be a joint um, exercise. And the expert panel... Um, that Terence Arnold chaired that came out late last year um, sets out all the elements that really need to be in um, what was at that point called the Adaptation Act, um, but which was not completed before the elections. Um, there was a um, select committee going to be looking at the submissions on that, that plan, um, and we're waiting to hear basically um, when that might be actioned. Um, but there is a good body of information available for some pretty clear decisions to be made. Um, and they shouldn't need to take um, a lengthy period of time um, to be worked through because a lot of work has already been done. Yeah, so, so what, what sort of things need to happen now 
does there need to be this um, select committee which receives submissions on that report and, you know, a response from the government and a legislative process uh, to create a climate adaptation act is that is that what's needed yeah that's one of the things but i think it has to happen in a in a in a cross party way it has to be a um nonpartisan um otherwise it won't survive and you know this is one of the difficulties we have is that some of these big issues really need to have lasting decisions made around them not ones that will be changed rapidly um with the color of whatever the government might be um, because it, it's not helpful, and it, and it delays action, and it actually increases the cost long term um, on people who can least afford to pay. So I think we know enough about that internationally and also locally now, um, with a lot of examples around the country where we've had these big deluges before. This isn't the first time, um, but it, it's 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 occurring more frequently. Um, and in places where there are large populations, which therefore has greater impact. Um, so I think, yes, getting um, an agenda together that has wide appeal and cross-party cross agreement um, about uh, funding, um, but, more, but more importantly also about the planning, the planning provisions that back up um, and stop further development in these sorts of places. And also what might happen, for instance, with sea level rise, where the change is progressive and the places will need to be moved in the future. And just who pays for that? Um, there has been quite a bit of work done on this, um, planned retreat, managed retreat, um, by several different names. And this has, has really crystallised since the Auckland um, floods and the East Coast devastation um, where land uses have had an, a real impact on the amount of sedimentation, the amount of slash, the amount of, um, um, if you like, landscape collapse, which is essentially what's happened up the East Coast. So there are different issues in different places around the country, um, but there's absolutely no reason why we can't come up with some clear guidance and rules um, to get this thing moving um, before the next deluge. Yeah, I wonder, though, whether both main parties for a bipartisan solution really understand the uh, scale of the issue and also that it would fundamentally shift uh, the funding arrangements between central and local government, but also the, you know, the, the um, broad and often unspoken consensus about size of government and the um, involvement of government in, in infrastructure. For example, uh, my reading of the political economy of the last 20 or 30 years is that both parties uh, have aimed to keep the size of total government at less than 30% of GDP and to run relatively low um, debt to GDP ratios. 20 to 30 percent, uh, ironically, because they worry about the next big one. Um, but but do, do you think there needs to be a, a broader assessment of the changing costs and the you know changing fundamentals of size of government, size of tax take, you know, involvement of government in funding um, local infrastructure? Do, do you think it, it 
something more substantial is required or that there is a way through with the current you know limits being those 30%? No, I, I, think, I think there is um, a case for fundamental rethinking. Um, the, uh, as you're probably aware, the local government reform was, all, was also on the table um, over the last three years. Um, and I think some of that needs to come together. Um, the infrastructure, um, future provision of inf- infrastructure needs to be tailored um, and for changing climate. Um, and certainly the um, debt levels of local government are insufficient for borrowing, um, for undertaking some of the lar- large structural changes that will need to happen over time. But I, but I think one of the things is that not everything needs to be done all at once. So I, I, while the, the, the damage costs are going to be quite large or very large um, over time, the high priority areas could be prioritised and the effort gone into reducing the risk in those areas. But we need a mechanism to do that. And currently that is being done through the RMA. Um, and I think everyone agrees that that is insufficient to be able to deal with the um, the big issues like climate change. Um, and so I think there are, as I said before, we need a better integration in terms of our planning for land use, planning for infrastructure, planning for development, and avoiding um, and reducing the risk um, from climate change. Um, that needs to come together as well as be, and that will inevitably challenge the levels at which some of the decisions are taken and also um, the borrowing capacity of either government or or local government and the different roles across the the different levels of government. And um, so I think there is a case for it and um, that has not been put quite as, as starkly as that in the expert panel's report, for instance, um, but there are elements of it in there, and that could be pulled together along with whatever happens with the um, RMA reforms um, going forward. So I think this this idea of integrating, you know, your building act, your building code, your local government act, um, the infrastructure um, provisions within that, and the um, climate change and disaster response. So you want both a proactive element to it as well as a uh, reactive and we're quite good at the reactive um, but that's no longer enough under the sort of conditions going forward. Yeah I I wonder too um, how we should think about the issue of moral hazard because there is there is a risk here that you know a whole bunch of people have bought uh, clifftop properties and um, sandy uh, uh, reclaimed land, mm. beachfront mm. properties that are worth a gazillion dollars um, yep. uh, and have bought it quite recently, uh, you know, rock up to a government or a council and say, right, you buy me out at the latest CV, I'm fine with that. Uh, and, mm. and it's perfectly fair that taxpayers in general should pay millions and millions of dollars for my second or third property that I hardly ever live in. Yeah, well, the expert panel actually suggested that only um, – um, primary homes would be um, covered through a buyout scheme for the very reason that you've just outlined. Um, There is a moral hazard in this. 
And there's, you know, equity, fairness issues are fundamental to um, any policy development around um, buyouts and purchase in risky areas. Um, but I think the very first action that really needs to be taken <laughs> is we need to stop building in these places. And, you know, that, 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 that has, you know, identifying where those risky areas are. We know where most of them are. Most councils will know where they are. Um, and we need to stop doing further assessments of where they are. We know where they are in most cases and do a high-level sort of identification of where these risky places are and prioritise them and make sure that we've got decent planning provisions which, you know, stop further development in these areas. So that, to me, is sort of a number one step which we outlined in a research report um, under the Resilient Science Challenge. And, um, and then... The next step would be to look at um, the whole question of the buyout in event of where those risky areas are and when they need to be bought out and so forth. But certainly moral hazard is a significant issue and um, it, it, it has been addressed in that expert panel's um, report quite specifically. I'm curious too about the role of insurance, private insurers, and um, yep. how... Globally, often it's the big global reinsurers that are the most aware mm. and sometimes have done the most research and thought the most about how climate change um, creates more intense, frequent events and are pulling out of markets. Mm. And essentially, yep. um, the politicians and the homeowners are not really in control of the process, um, particularly when yeah. global regulators and um, stock exchanges and the likes are forcing insurers and banks and a whole bunch of people to start declaring their climate risks. Uh, how, how, mm. do you, how do you think we should deal with this issue of, you know, insurance retreat, which, which you know, doesn't need an active parliament to happen? <laughs> There's no, no. other players yeah, doing it. Now. Yeah, exactly. We have yearly contracts for our insurance, so it can be changed very quickly. Um, the insurance industry in New Zealand, um, not the reinsurers, but the insurers have already um, signalled that certain places in New Zealand will not get insurance um, going forward for certain types of um, risks. And um, sea level rise is an obvious one because it's foreseeable and it's certain out to a certain period of time um, in terms of areas that are going to be affected. So um, that's a sort of a no-brainer, really. <laughs> And and the question really is that insurance wants to insurance industry wants to continue, and so it spreads at risk, its risks across different types of risks, and that means that um, the the people who are um, directly affected by through insurance retreat will be looking to selling off their properties, and this is where it gets really tricky because the prices will go down, which means that people who can only afford cheap houses, cheaper houses, I should say, um, will be the ones that buy them. And so they will end up with a stranded asset and they will end up with very little to come by and also be in the risky areas. And so real estate agents have a moral duty to um, consider this issue and we constantly are seeing land being put up for sale in absolutely dumb places. One recently in Hawke's Bay, which is in the swash zone of the beach. It's up for sale for $1. Um, and 
this is going this sort of thing will continue now the the insurance interest industry will not want to retreat from everything but they will i think retreat from particular types of risks um because they want to stay in business um so there will have, well, the, there is a role for insurance so that people are not detrimentally affected but not to the extent that it provides an incentive to purchase property in places where their number is up Judy, that's great. Hey, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to stop it there. Uh, we've we've uh, okay. We've-